Well, in, in honor of Dr. Toussaint, I'd like to uh, read a couple of jokes. <laughs> you know, he would always start his uh, teaching with jokes, and these were sent to Kathy and me by our daughter. They're actually some creative, pretty clever signs. You know, sometimes you'll see on churches signs that you think, why is that on a church? But it is. But this, appropriately, is on the Indian Hills Community Center in Colorado. And some of these are really clever. I won't read them all because I probably shouldn't read them all. But a few of them I, I, I can read. So here, here are some that, that are kind of cute. This one says, dogs can't operate MRI scanners, but cats scan. Okay, that sort of sets the stage. This is the level at which we're laughing. Okay, here's another. Our mountains aren't just funny, they're hill areas. Yeah, it only gets worse. Turning, here's another. Turning vegan would be a big mistake. Another. Well, to be frank, I'd have to change my name. Here's, here's one that I wish was on every billboard. Forget visualizing world peace. Visualize using your turn signal. Yes. Yes. I love this one. Life is short. If you can't laugh at yourself, call me. I will. <laughs> oh, that's a great one. Yeah, I'm not reading that one. Here's another one. This one's great. We can send this to Donald Trump. It says, ban pre-shredded cheese, make America great again. <laughs> oh, I like that one. This one's sort of on the edge. Uh, electricians have to strip to make ends meet. Okay, maybe I shouldn't have read that one. And I'll skip that one. Here's, here's another one. My mood ring is missing, and I don't know how I feel about that. And I'll see. Let me scramble to the end here. Oh, that one's good. Uh, crushing pop cans is soda pressing. Um, okay, and here's Ellen with this one. He who laughs last didn't get it. <laughs> oh, that's good. You can thank Sarah Stiles for those. Well, you've probably noticed that very few people in life uh, attain stardom status. And honestly, that's a good thing. Because fame hangs on the thin wires of what have you done for me lately. Um, agents and fans are always looking for the next championship, always the next bestseller. And as soon as you quit producing great stuff, you, you go from... Uh, rock star to rock bottom. You quit being uh, nationally famous and you go to the National Enquirer. And people quit admiring your talent and they begin gawping at your, your hair loss, your weight gain, and your DWIs. I don't know if you've noticed, but after the Super Bowl or the Oscars, it's always fascinating to, to note how short that glory lasts. Because how many of us remember who won Best Actor in 1983? 
Nobody remembers because nobody cares. It mattered then for that brief moment, and probably the only one who remembers it is the one that won Best Actor in 1983. Worldly success is so short-lived, and yet how often do we sort of fall into line with that same sort of mentality of longing for things that last such a short time? There's a well-known tennis star who defeated Chris Everett Lloyd and was asked how the, after the match how she felt. And she said this, and I'll read her words. She said, any big win means that all the suffering and practicing and traveling are worth it. I feel like I own the world. And when she was asked how long that feeling lasts, she said, about two minutes. <laughs> we'll work really hard as kids to win the approval of our parents. We'll work really hard as adults to work the approval, to win the approval of our boss. But often we find that it isn't enough. We will work hard for a vacation or some time off and we come home again to the daily grind waiting for us. We live for the weekend and all of a sudden Monday shows up. How do we deal with the obvious futility of life in a life where things fade? We can't just live for the next vacation or the next weekend or the next pat on the back because it's so shallow. We've got to live for something that lasts longer. In fact, we're told to. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, as Peter is going to teach us this morning how to love what lasts. It's so easy to enjoy cotton candy, but what a great metaphor it is for what the world offers. You put cotton candy in your mouth, and you better enjoy it fast because it's gone. So much of what our world offers us is like that, isn't it? Peter is writing to a group of believers who are struggling. They're struggling to live out their faith in a time when it's hard to live out your faith, a lot like our time. Peter reminds them that even amidst the problems, even amidst the persecution that they're experiencing and the persecution that's going to come, that they can, they can have joy. They can laugh through their tears, as we've said, because with the perspective that that truth gives, that scripture gives, they can see their trials as necessary because it proves their faith, but also temporary. Paul would describe it as light momentary trials in view of what we look forward to in glory. And Peter challenges us. We saw it last time in chapter 1 there, verse 13. He says, prepare your mind for action, keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We're to live holy lives because our holy God is holy, and we're to look forward to something that is going to be eternal. Well, we stopped last time in verse 21, so let's continue. Peter continues right along the same line of thinking by challenging us to look beyond temporary things and to devote ourselves to two things that last forever. Look at verse 22. Peter writes, since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another 
from the heart. Notice what Peter is saying here in verse 22. You have a sincere love for the brethren, therefore fervently love one another. Why would Peter tell people who already love one another to love one another? <laughs> because he's talking about two different kinds of love. We're sort of handicapped by reading the English here, but in the original language, it would have been very clear because there are two different words for love that are used. The first word that's used here when, it, when uh, Peter writes, you have purified your soul for a sincere love of the brethren, is the, is the Greek word Philadelphia. And we know Philadelphia as the city of brotherly love. And that's what Philadelphia means. Philo or philos it means love, and adelphos means brother. It's, it's the love of uh, not just brothers, but a, a love of friendship. The city of brotherly love. I heard somebody from Philadelphia say one time, he says, that's really the, the city of brotherly shove. There's not a lot of brotherly love, he says. But Peter is saying, this, this is what you have done well. And honest, honestly, it's easy to do Philadelphia love well. Because the Philadelphia love is the, it's the potluck love. It's the love of the koinonia lunch. It's the love of the talk to your neighbor over the fence. It's the puppy love of the first date. It's the love where you enjoy being around somebody because they're easy to be around. It's a love that is just, it's just fun. It's a friendship love. It's an affection. It's a love that's all smiles. And there's nothing wrong with that. Peter says you have uh, enjoyed this kind of love together. And, and it, there's nothing wrong with this love. But the problem is this love can't be by itself. Because if the Philadelphia love is the only kind of love that we as Christians have, where it's focused only on feelings of pleasure, then it can very quickly turn to selfishness and very quickly turn into conditional love. Because the reality is, it isn't always fun to be around people. In fact, I would say the majority of relationships, both Christian and non-Christian, center exclusively on a Philadelphia love. The whole reason that we took our vows standing at the altar is not because Philadelphia love would ever be a problem. It's because Philadelphia love is so fleeting. You don't take vows to love somebody all your life, meaning I, I, I'll be friendly all my life. It's a, it's a commitment that goes far beyond feelings. And Peter says we're to have that same type of love for one another because feelings change. He says to add to the Philadelphia love uh, a fervent love. This is a different word. This is the word agape or agapo, the verb, to love one another, passionately love one another with a selfless type of love. These two, these two loves are, are really couldn't be more different. The Philadelphia love is a love of, uh, that begins and ends with your feelings. The agape love begins and ends with your will. It's what you choose. It's a love of sacrifice. It is a love that is selfless. It may be things are smiling, maybe things are not. It really doesn't matter because you, you're choosing to love. You're not doing it because of what you get from it. 
The Philadelphia love is very much one of, that you receive something. And that's why you like it. And again, there's nothing wrong with that, except that can't be all the love that we have as Christians for one another. Because the reality is we're all going to, we're going to lock horns occasionally, and we're going to struggle, and not everybody is easy to be around. And I'm not thinking about anybody in particular. <laughs> Ed, you were just easy to pick on, that's all. But the word that's translated here, fervently love one another from the heart, it refers to being eager and pers persisting in that activity. It is a selfless type of love. So a couple of, a couple of commands uh, that Peter gives us, we could sort of boil down to principles. And here's the first principle or first application for us. And it's simply this, that God commands us to go beyond feeling love for one another, to showing love to one another. Going beyond feeling love to one another, to showing love to one another. Henry Nouwen wrote this. He said, if you allow someone to love you, that love will take you to painful places. Ask yourself the question, do I show love to others only when they make me feel good? And if it's yes, then you and I need to move beyond the level of the potluck love to the level of the selfless love, to the love of decision, not the love of feeling. Because if we don't, then we're no different than the world. Whenever someone talks about falling out of love, what, what are they talking about? They're talking about Philadelphia. Because agape love is a decision. It's not a feeling. And we have all, all failed at this. So this is a challenge because this is challenged to us because it is a challenge. The life that we live is a life that constantly pushes against uh, wanting to love selflessly. We want to love to, to be reciprocated. Keep your finger here at 1 Peter and turn back to 1 Corinthians. Look at 1 Corinthians 13. Our familiarity with this great chapter, or particularly these verses in it, often honestly robs us of the power of their words. In 1 Corinthians 13, Let's look at a wonderful, inspired definition of the kind of love that Peter is telling us that we need to have for one another. And this is a love that is not just in the halls of our church. It's a, it's a love that's in our homes, where, which is where the church in its most essential place. It's a love that we have in our extended families. It's a love that we're to have toward anyone else who is a Christian. The love that we are to persist in, look at verse 4, is a love that is patient. A love that is kind and not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own 
It is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. And honestly, how can it? If this is the love we have, it can't fail. All things excludes nothing, does it? This is our goal. So often this is not our actions, which is why it's here, to challenge us, to remind us, as Jesus lived this type of love, that this is the type of love we're to have. So back in 1 Peter, Peter says this is the kind of love we're to add to the feel-good love that we enjoy, the kind of love that pushes through those times that don't feel so good. God commands us to go beyond feeling love to one another to showing love for one another. And notice that it's not a command for others to love us. Sometimes it's easy to read these commands and think, you know, you, you're commanded biblically to love me. The Bible doesn't give us these to remind us of our rights, but of our responsibilities. The, ne- the Bible never, I shouldn't say seldom, rarely speaks in terms of our rights. It, it often speaks in terms of our responsibility. In other words, if there is someone that you, that you haven't loved or haven't loved sacrificially, don't wait for them. It's your move. It's my move. It is our responsibility. What we have shied away from because we know it would require sacrifice, we need to look again, Peter writes. Why should we place such a priority on this kind of love? Well, Peter tells us. Look at verse 23. For, or you could translate it because, you have been born again. Not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. Why should we place such a priority on love? Peter tells us because you have been born again. Why should we love people who are eternal? Because you have been born again through a seed or through a source which is not perishable but is imperishable. It's eternal too. In fact, you have been given eternal life. Therefore, our, our motivation is to love because of what Christ has done for us. You know, there's probably nobody here that can, that can uh, name the last three winners of the Miss America or the last three Academy Award winners for Best Actor or the last three winners of the Super Bowl. Now, maybe there's some in here that could the Super Bowl. I couldn't even tell you who the last winner of the Super Bowl was. Probably not many of us. And yet, these are the best in their field. And yet, all of us could, could name uh, our, our three best teachers. All of us could name the three heroes in our lives. 
that have meant more to us than anyone else. Why is that? It's because of the agape love that they showed us, of the sacrificial love that they gave us, of the, of the modeling that they did for us. And that potential, or that, that action that someone has had in your life is a potential that you have in someone else's. And the wonderful, great truth about this is you never know what, what action can change someone's life or mean something to someone. I had somebody come up to me one time and thank me for something that they said had a, a transformative effect in their life, and I thanked them, and they walked off, and I thought, I don't even remember doing that. I really don't. In fact, I'm not sure I did, but I'm glad they think I did. <laughs> you don't know what the Lord is going to use, whether it's a gracious word or a gracious action. It can be life-changing for people. The things that dazzle our eyes and compel us to devoting our lives to chasing, like the cotton candy things of this world, they have glory, but it's a temporary glory. Peter, Peter uh, compares it to flowers. And he's thinking, and we know he's thinking of something in particular because he quotes Isaiah here in verse 24, and Isaiah is referring to the grass or the flower in the Judean wilderness. If you've ever been to Israel or when you go to Israel, you will no doubt travel through the Judean wilderness. And if you go in like February or early March, you will see across the wilderness just this sort of light green. It's just thin carpet of, of hair-thin grass that covers, and it's beautiful. It's, it's this desert with, with beautiful green hills. And it, it's so picturesque of Psalm 23 and, and the Lord and David taking his shepherd, his uh, sheep as a shepherd out into that very wilderness. But the thing is, it doesn't last. As soon as uh, April, May begins and it really begins to heat up, that grass almost evaporates. And it just, it withers so quickly. And this is the picture that Peter is giving us here when he quotes Isaiah. The grass withers and the flower falls off. It is so short-lived. It's wonderful for a brief time, but it doesn't last. What does last? Well, he's already told us one thing, that is people. We're to love people because people last, because other Christians have been born not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. People are eternal. But we're also to told here in verse 25, the word of God endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. The word of God is also something else that is, um, that is eternal. And as a result, that's the second thing that we're to devote ourselves to. Not just to loving people, but also to loving the word of God. Look at verse uh, 1 of the next chapter. Therefore, so Peter makes the connection. Therefore, putting aside all malice... And all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. 
You notice here in verse 1, all these things Peter says were to put aside are things that are not conducive to loving people. The therefore in verse 1 forces us to go back, and it's pointing back to this selfless love that we're to have for one another. If the word of God is eternal, and if people are eternal, then we are to set aside the things that get in, a way, that get in the way of that, like all malice. Malice is a word that basically focuses on uh, holding something against someone. It's, it's, it's an idea of, of a harm in a relationship that, that doesn't need to be there. Um, deceit is clear. Hypocrisy. Uh, hypocrisy, basically, it's a word that's it's used, uh, the, the original word is used of a mask that an actor would wear on the stage. And it's a wonderful picture of so often how we are in our relationships with one another that we'll paint on the smile and we'll say something and, and be very, uh, very dishonest in what, in what we're portraying. Envy, is, he also mentions, and slander. All of these are not conducive to loving one another selflessly, which is why he gets very specific. And notice there's not a yeah but in verse 1. It's all malice, all deceit and hypocrisy and envy, all slander. There's no exception, which again is a very high standard. But we're called to nothing less. As we set these things aside, what are we to passionately pursue? He gives us this beautiful picture of a baby. And it's not just a baby, but a newborn baby. A baby that longs for the pure milk of the word. Um, obviously, I've never been a mother, but I, my wife has been a mother twice, and we've had two babies. And so this newborn baby feeding business is something that uh, we've, we've been very familiar with. And I tell you what, those babies are not, they don't keep ours. When, when you want, uh, when, when they're hungry. They can be hungry in the middle of the night. In fact, they often are. And uh, my job in the middle of the night often was when, I, when we would hear the baby crying, uh, Kathy would just kind of reach over and touch me. And as she would reach over and touch me, my job was to go get the baby and bring, bring the baby to Kathy. And so uh, I'm a successful father if I can, if I can do that. <laughs> Most of the time it worked. But those babies were passionate for the pure milk of mom. This is a metaphor that to a person, whether you have experienced it, you can certainly understand it. A newborn baby longs for that milk and nothing else will satisfy except that. This is the picture of the Bible. This is the picture of the scriptures. And it is a picture that Peter says we are to be like this. It's a command. It's not just a description that newborn babies long for the pure milk. The word long is a command. Like newborn babies, long for it. Have a hunger for that which will cause you to grow in your spiritual life. That's a wonderful, wonderful command. We're to embrace the only thing that is the means of our growth. Notice that Peter says, by it you may grow in respect to salvation. That's it. That's all we have is the Bible. 
If you want to grow, if I want to grow in our spiritual life, then the Bible is the means by which that happens. And disengagement from the Bible is the great challenge that that we face today as Christians. It is not a popular thing in the world to to talk about the Bible, which is so funny because you go to Washington, D.C., and you see Scripture etched in marble everywhere. And then you walk into the Smithsonian, and all of a sudden it's all evolution. It's so, so amazing, the contradiction. The world is not going to support us in this. We have got to support each other. And even the church, unfortunately, by and large, isn't going to be pushing the Bible. I don't mean our church. Thankfully, we are in a congregation that holds the Word of God up, not in a sense of worship, but as a means of truth, as a means of understanding the mind of the Lord. The only way we have it is through the Scriptures. And we are blessed to be in a church that teaches that. And largely that's because we are blessed, our church leaders are blessed to have come, for the most part, from Dallas Seminary and other seminaries, but Dallas Seminary that has a passion for the Word of God. It begins often in the seminaries, and then it goes to the pulpits, and then it goes to the pews, and then it goes to the home. So often it begins in the institution of higher learning. We need to pray for the seminaries of our country. There are so few that still, that still have as it, the center of its curriculum the 66 books of the Bible. Um, it's so easy to crawl off and to get into other stuff. But this, this book must remain the center. And it's not just that way in seminary. It's got to be the focus of our time on Sunday mornings. has got to be around this book uh, and understanding the book and applying the book and also worshiping the Lord. These are things that you can't do anywhere else. But then it also, Peter gives us the personal challenge to have a personal relationship with God through the Scriptures. If you, um, if you struggle to do this on a regular basis, I want to just encourage you and take, take this as an encouragement, as a great reminder that your walk with God is only as strong as your time in the Word of God. It's, uh, think, compare it to, uh, well, compare it, use the metaphor that, that Peter uses. Imagine a newborn babe that doesn't eat for several days. Would not be a healthy child. It would, it would begin to diminish its health very quickly. And we're very similar in our take of the Bible. The, the great thing about the Word of God is our exposure to it. It renews our minds. It renews our minds. I remember hearing Dr. Hannah one time at Dallas Seminary say how important it is that we read the Bible. And even though we can't retain it, it's like, it's like a, a sieve or it's like a strainer. It keeps the strainer clean even though it runs, all runs out. We have to continually put it in. But it, it keeps our mind clean. It keeps our mind focused. And it renews our mind. Otherwise, as we read um, back in verse 14 last week, to not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, to, but to have our minds renewed. Over the last 15 years, the Center for Bible Engagement has surveyed more than 200,000 people around the world about their spiritual lives. In fact, they say this, quote, a key discovery from the research is that the life of someone who engages in Scripture four or more times a week 
looks radically different from the life of someone who does not. In fact, the lives of Christians who do not engage the Bible most days of the week are statistically the same as the lives of non-believers. And then I looked at some of the specifics of what they said. Listen, listen to these stats. Someone who reads or listens to the, to the Scripture four times a week or more is 30% less likely to struggle with loneliness, 59% less likely to view pornography, 228% more likely to share their faith, 407% more likely to memorize Scripture just by reading the Bible four times or more per week. And there are other stats, but those particularly stood out. A healthy Christian is a growing Christian, just like a healthy baby is a growing baby. And in order for us to grow, we have to be in the pure spiritual milk of the Word. Because Peter says, by it you may grow in respect to salvation. And then he says in verse 3, if, which really could be translated since, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord, and you have, it's assumed to be true, since you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Here's the second principle from Peter's passage today, and it's this. The priority that we give to God's Word reflects the priority we give to spiritual growth. The priority we give to God's Word reflects the priority we give to spiritual growth. It's a one-to-one. -one. I read a funny story, um, just a little news bit uh, a few years ago. The Tournament of Roses parade had various floats going down through it, you know, all decked out with roses and stuff. But there was one float that stopped the whole uh, parade because it ran out of gas. And it was the Standard Oil Company. <laughs> Isn't that great? It's such a great picture because it, the vast resources that it had and its own float was out of, out of gas. I think the same is true of us as Christians sometimes. Our problem is not a lack of resources. Nine out of ten homes in America, anyway, have a Bible. And more than half of us have more than one Bible. In fact, I think it's, it's like ten Bibles or something. It's, it's a crazy. And not only that, through the Internet, we have access to the Bible in any translation we want. Flip on the radio or podcasting. It is everywhere. It's like the Levitical cities that, that the Lord sprinkled all throughout Israel in back in the biblical days. God positioned them to where people only had to walk within a day's walk and you could have access to a priest anywhere in Israel. And the Lord has made that access for us as well through the Word of God. Any translation you want, any co color of Bible cover you want, it's all right there. What's lacking is the passion, the hunger, the decision to spend time in the Bible. Jesus said, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You know when he was quoting that? In the midst of temptation. See, the, 
the Word of God is not just for us to, to drink our coffee with in the mornings and to close it and to, to kind of think, what a great thought. But it's to carry with us throughout the day because in those moments of temptation, often you're not going to be able to, to find the Bible and find that verse and pull out your concordance. But if you have mulled through the truth of Scripture and you have asked, Lord, what is the one thing today that I can chew on and meditate throughout the day? What is the one principle that you have given me from what I've read in the text today that I can think about all throughout the day? And it will be amazing if you will do that, how the Lord will give you the opportunity to apply what you've pondered. It really is amazing because the Word of God is designed to be applied in our lives. Jesus applied it in temptation, and we can do it the same way. And I love what Jesus quotes. We don't live by bread alone, but every word. We are not just physical beings. We are spiritual beings. God has not just made us to need to eat. He has made us to need to read and to assimilate spiritually, just like our bodies assimilate physically. There's, there's not a day that many of us miss meals. And the same needs to be true of us spiritually. Our motivation to grow He's told us there in verse 3, you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. The NIV captures it really well. It says, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. I love the, the way that's written. God's word is the means of growth. God's grace in your life is the motivation for growth. This is what Peter's teaching. And this priority of spiritual things is not one that the world will encourage you. Look at verse 4. And coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men. Notice, rejected by men. But is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value, then, is for you who believe. Let's pause there. Notice what he's, what he's saying we come to Christ, who is compared to a living stone, verse 4. And notice, Christ was rejected by men, but he is choice and precious in the sight of God. Then verse 5, he says, the same is true of you. You also, like Christ, are like a living stone, in that you are being built up into a house. It's sort of, it could be the picture, especially since this is Peter writing it, of what Jesus told Peter up in Caesarea Philippi when he said, on this rock, I will build my church. Peter uses a similar metaphor when he talks about a stone building up a church, a, a, spiritual, uh, a spiritual entity, which is God's church. And we are to offer up spiritual sacrifices. This sort of harkens back to the agape love that we're to show to each other, because that's a sacrifice. It is a sacrifice to love somebody who's not lovable. 
and, and it is acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And isn't the word precious precious in verse 4? You, as even though you've been rejected by others, you are precious and choice or literally chosen in the sight of God. That's something that we've got to remember because the world is not going to applaud you. You had your quiet time this morning? Fantastic! They're going to they're not going to understand that. In fact, you, you'll probably even get ridiculed if you were to mention it. But for the Lord, it is precious. And you are chosen and you are precious in his sight. Um, I read about an armed robber up in South Dakota, Rapid City, South Dakota. When he was arrested, they went through his belongings and they found in his wallet a credo that he had written. And I won't read all of them because it would take too long, but several. These are the, this is the credo of this, this robber. He says, I will not kill anyone unless I have to. I will take cash and food stamps, no checks. I will rob only at night. I will not wear a mask. I will rob only seven months out of the year. I love that. There's nothing like a moral thief. <laughs> but when I read that, I thought, you know, that's a lot like what people who try to get into heaven without the grace of God. You're, it's, it's a standard that may seem really high to you, but reality, it's, you still miss the mark. We can't get to heaven by anything other than the grace of God. In verse 7, we stopped halfway through it, but let's read it and keep going. It says, This precious value, then, is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. To try to get into heaven any other way other than the grace of God is a sure recipe for disaster. I hope that you've come to the place in your life where you realize that there's nothing that you can do to earn God's favor. Because even if you have a really high standard, it's sort of like the thief with a high standard. You've still broken God's law. All of us have. But by His great grace, He sent His Son, Jesus, to die on the cross, and by simply believing in him that he has died in your place as your substitute, your sins are forgiven. This is the good news that, of the gospel. This is the good news, Peter says, that we have believed. Look at verse 9. Peter writes, But you are a chosen race. Very emphatic. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And here's why. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter is quoting what was true of Israel in the Old Testament. 
And he's not saying that we, that the church has replaced Israel. He's saying that what was true of Israel is also true of us as Christians. That is, we were, we were selected by grace. And that grace is our motivation to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. The application of the text is really pretty simple today. Love what lasts. And there's only two things that's la- that, that last. First of all, we need to go beyond feeling love for one another to showing love for one another. People. That's the first thing. And the second thing is the priority that we give to God's word reflects the priority we give to spiritual growth. God's word and God's people. These are the things that last. These are the things that we must devote ourselves to loving. Let's pray. Our Father, we're grateful to you because you've given us such a clear picture in this text of the flower that fades, like the the things that the world offers us that are cotton candy to our spiritual lives. But instead, we're to focus on the things that last, people, and sacrificially loving, not just feeling good, pursuing the people that make us feel good, but loving them in a sacrificial way. And devoting ourselves personally, being personally responsible for our spiritual growth by spending time in the Word of God. Thank you for this book that you've uh, painstakingly caused to be written and also painstakingly preserved for us that we may um, apply it, that we may read it, apply it, and be the beacon of light to a world that desperately needs to hear the message that we ourselves have received. Lord, we love you, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.